Welcome to Understanding the Bible with Pastor Stephen. This is episode 53, The Bible is Historically Accurate. Previously, we had discussed how the Bible is scientifically true. Um, In the next episode, I talked about the scholarly reasons we should read the Bible, the moral reasons, the logical reasons. And then the next episode, I talked about how there are zero contradictions in the Bible. And I disproved some of the main contradictions that people pretend that there are. So this episode, will discuss the historical accuracy of the Bible. And I want you to listen to something really quick uh, right before I do that. It's like a 30-second clip from uh, Instagram. If people say, yeah, what's the difference, you know, what, the Bible's just another book. No, first off, that's wrong. The Bible's not a book. The Bible's six to six books, 40 different people wrote it. Over 1,500 years, there's never been a book like that in history, ever. Does that make it the Word of God? No. It just means it's worth considering, because there's never been a book like this gives you some reason to consider it over the others. Well, how about history? For hundreds of years, archaeology has used the Old Testament and new to find buildings, to find people, to find civilizations, to find kings that didn't exist or they didn't think they did. And suddenly the Bible said they're there and they dug it up and there it was. Does that make it the word of God? No. It means it's historically accurate. Real people really existed and really wrote down what they saw. It's worth considering. And then they said, we're going to have God show up. And lots of people said that. Lots of religions say it. Don't worry, we'll prove it, as a rational God would do. I will do prophecies. I will show that I'm not trapped in linear time, that I can see beyond where you are. I will give prophecies to tell you what the guy, when I show up and God appears on earth to reveal himself, I'll show you what it's going to look like. Over 300 prophecies. And then a man showed up one day named Jesus. And he said, I'm that guy. And he fulfilled all 300 prophecies. That's impossible. People could say, well, yes, uh, they just wrote it afterwards and filled it all in. But we know that the first Greek translation of the Old Testament was done 250 years before Jesus was born. I think the way that he explains that is just really good. Now, let's get into some of those historical proofs. The people of the Bible have proven that the Bible is historically true. For example, uh, David, King David in 1 Chronicles 29 we have actually discovered the Canaanite stone monument that mentions King David. It's called the Tel Dan Stella and Stella just means stone monument. We've found other proof of him as well, but there's an obscure King that people used to not believe was uh, real. And that was King Omri from first Kings 1622. Now he was actually discovered uh, in the Acropolis of the Samaria ruins. Then we have King Ahab in second Kings eight, King Shalmaneser III of Assyria wrote about him. And then we also find King Ahab in the Mesha Stella. So there's lots of people in the Bible that we have actually found evidence of in history. And the reason why that's so important is because for a very long time, at least in, in modern times, people have said that the Bible's fake. It's just a bunch of fake stories. A bunch of people wrote the Bible. They, they made up stories or they embellished the truth or you can't really prove the Bible. Well, these people that have been found historically to have actually lived in the time period and in the places that the Bible talks about backs up the accuracy of the Bible. So there's a whole bunch of them. King Jehu in 1 Kings 16 
The black obelisk uh, that was discovered actually proves who he was. Joash in 2 Chronicles 25, the Tel Aramis steel is in the Iraq Museum in Baghdad. There's many others, Jeroboam II, Isaiah, Menahem, Ahaz, Pekah, Hosea, Hezekiah, and this one's really cool. I wanted to talk about this one. Hezekiah, it was doubted that he was real. Nobody had ever heard of him, okay, as far as archaeology and science goes. Second Chronicles 32 talks about him, and historically, people said, well, here's proof that Hezekiah, the whole Bible story is made up, because the Bible talks about a tunnel that he built and nobody had ever seen it. So we're talking modern times, you know, nobody had seen this tunnel, right? So Second Chronicles 32, verse 2, it says, And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was prepared to fight against Israel or Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains, which were without the city, and they did help him. So there were gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Basically, they were preparing to be besieged behind the walls of Jerusalem, and they didn't want the besieging army to have access to water. Now, he built a tunnel to bring water inside Jerusalem under the wall, a hidden tunnel to a pool inside the city so that they would have fresh water, but the enemy outside the city gates would not. And that's in 2 Kings 20, verse 20. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a conduit or a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So it's from the Gihon Spring to the southwestern side of the city that the pool of Siloam or Siloam, it was thought to be a fake story until 1867, Sir Charles Warren discovered the tunnel. Now there's an inscription, the Siloam inscription in stone, 20 feet from the south end of the tunnel, wasn't discovered until 1880. And here's what part of it reads, quote, are there flowed from the water from the spring to the pool over a space of 1,200 cubits and of a cubit was the height of a ro the rock above the heads of the excavators. Now that stone that has that quote on it is in the Turkey Istanbul Archaeological Museum. In addition to this tunnel and King Hezekiah who, who had the tunnel built, the idea of a cubit being a unit of measurement was previously thought to be made up from the story of Noah's Ark. So nobody believed in the cubit until they found this at the entrance to the tunnel that measured the length of the tunnel by cubits. Towards the end of December 2015, archaeologists made an interesting discovery near the Temple Mount, and they found a clay royal seal, or a bulla, inscribed with the name of King Hezekiah. It had a royal motif and an Egyptian hieroglyph on it. That's in the Israeli Museum. Uh, it was also described, uh, this besiegement of Jerusalem and King Hezekiah, on the Akkadian cuneiform inscription, or also known as Sennacherib's prism which describes the siege, the tribute, and the battle with King Hezekiah, discovered in 1830 AD, and that's in the British Museum. Multiple proofs here for this king with a story of the tunnel and then the measurement, the length of the tunnel, which is really cool. And I'll go into that a little bit later for multiple reasons here. But it wasn't until 1867 that people realized this Bible story was true. So King Hezekiah's tunnel is just an amazing thing that I really love to talk about. 
Um, but the, that goes to the second thing, not just the people of the Bible, but the locations and the events found in the Bible are, are actually found to be true. So everyone thought these made up stories. Number one here was King Hezekiah's tunnel discovered in 1867. So for 1800 years, you know, everyone except for the Jews thought this was a stupid story. And then all of a sudden we prove that the Bible was right. Now there's another one. The city of Arid is described in Numbers 21, uh, the Canaanite king of Arid. And this was actually discovered in 1962 while building a new town. 30 kilometers northeast of Beersheba, it was excavated in 1962 all the way up to 1974 by Aharoni and Amaran. So that city was proven to be true. Capernaum was proven to be true. Uh, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 17. They came to Capernaum and that was where he was asked about paying taxes. And in 1866, Charles William Wilson identified the city known as Tel Hum as actually Capernaum. So they've actually excavated that city that prior to 1866, people didn't believe it existed. Now this one, you, you guys might know Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. It's typically the Bible story of how, uh, it was filled with sodomites, you know, gay men who were doing horrible things, raping people and things like that. And nothing but evil in that city, Genesis 13. And it says that they and their cities were destroyed by God. Well, guess what? It was discovered in approximately 2005 excavations by Dr. Stephen Collins, the Dean at the college of archeology span at Trinity Southwest university in New Mexico. Uh, the place is called Tel Alhaman, and it's a collection of five cities, a huge archaeological discovery, and his results were recently published in the prestigious scientific journal Nature. It's located in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. Go figure. If you know anything about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how it was destroyed and everything, and then, of course, you look at the Dead Sea, and it's kind of makes you think a little bit about why this, the sea is the way it is. Uh, the next city, the location is Gezer. That's in Joshua 16. They talk about that one. And uh, McAllister discovered that in 1902, excavated until 1909. The city of Hazor in Joshua 11, the city of Hezbon in Joshua 12. All of these cities and many more have been discovered. I'm just touching, you know, the tip of the iceberg on this stuff. There's so many archaeological discoveries that are based on the Bible that prove the historical accuracy of the Bible. It's amazing. Jericho, if you guys remember the story of that, um, how they walked around the wall six times and on the seventh time they blew their trumpets, the walls fell down and they went in and it's where the 12 spies went. Two of them were saved by the prostitute Rahab and they promised her, her and her household, if they stayed in there, they'd be safe, right? That's in Joshua chapter six. It was excavated by a person by the name of Warren in 1867. Two other people did uh, much deeper excavations in 1907. And then a woman by the name of Kenyon in 1952, she actually found the fallen wall under the direction of the British archeologist, Kathleen Kenyon on the West side of the tell at the base of the retaining or revetment wall. She found, and this is in her words, quote, fallen red bricks piling nearly to the top of the revetment. These probably came from the wall on the summit of the bank or the brickwork above the revetment. In other words, she found a heap of bricks from a fallen city wall that came to the height of the lower wall down below the city. 
So an Italian team excavating at the southern end of this city in 1997 found exactly the same thing on the other side of the city. What the Germans found in 1907 on the north side is pretty fascinating. This mirrors Joshua 6.23 about Rahab's house. They found a short stretch of the lower city wall that didn't fall. A portion of the mud brick wall was still standing to a height of over eight feet. And what is more, there were houses built against that section of the wall. It's quite possible that this is where Rahab's house was and the only place left standing where people were saved. Then the Bible talks about how they burned that city afterwards. After they killed everybody, they burned everything except for the gold and the silver. Kenyon described this devastation, quote, the destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire. Every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt, but the collapse of the walls of the eastern room seems to have taken place before they were affected by the fire. Even stores of grain, which is very unusual in archaeology to find burned grain due to its value. And in Joshua 6, 24, it says they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now we're going to talk about AI in Joshua 8. Dr. Scott Stripling used biblical records as a guide to locate the lost city of AI. He told the Daily Star in 2019, quote, my work in archaeology in Israel has affected me profoundly as a believer. I already believed in the Bible, but as the years go by, I have seen hundreds of examples of synchronization between the material culture we are excavating and what I read in the text. This is a constant reminder that there is a God and that he left a record of his work in history. Now, if you don't know the story of the AI is where they took out the king and hung him and then they buried him uh, under a pile of rocks at the entrance to the city. And I believe they found that pile of rocks as well. It's like 19 feet tall. It's, it's insane. Like an acre wide or, so, or half an acre wide or something like that. Anyways, other cities that have been discovered and proving the Bible accurate is Joppa in Acts 9, Nineveh in 2 Kings 19, Shechem in Genesis 12, Susa in Nehemiah 1.1. But let's go on. All right. There are artifacts found from Bible accounts, which is really cool. We talked about the unit of measurement called the cubit, and that comes from uh, Noah's Ark. If you look at Genesis 6, 15, God told Noah, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. Prior to the discovery of the cubit in the 1800s, people thought this was a made-up sci-fi measurement for a sci-fi story of the destruction of the earth. Okay. Literally, that's what people thought. Nobody has ever used the cubit. It's retarded. This is a made up thing, right? Then the discovery of King Hezekiah's tunnel and the Siloam inscription proved that the cubit was a unit of measurement that was approximately 18 inches long that has been used since ancient times. Now, I remember in 1990 when I was uh, in school and I started Googling this stuff, not Google back then, but I started researching this stuff 
and you could find this information. Now, when you Google, when was the cubit discovered? All you'll see is that people say the cubit's been used since like 3000 BC or whatever by the Egyptians and the Israelites and many other nations. So it's commonly accepted now. But even just 20 or 30 years ago, people did not commonly accept that. It was still a relatively new discovery. Very strange. But 1984, people delete things off the internet and hide the truth, just so you know. All right. So the next thing that people found, uh, Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. This was found by a Turkish archaeologist named Simsek. He discovered sacred items used in Christian worship while excavating a house in Laodicea. The peristyle house built around a central gardener courtyard was located next to a theater and was likely owned by wealthy people. And this is his own words. He concluded the house with a church will add to scholars understanding of how Christianity spread in Laodicea since the middle of the first century. So even New Testament books are leading to archaeological discoveries. From the Old Testament, the Goliath Wall, uh, this is the excavation at Tel Asafi, the Philistine city of Gath. They reached a layer that dates to the 11th century before Christ, the time of King David. The walls of this layer are 13 feet thick, twice as thick as previously excavated walls from the 9th and the 10th centuries. And archaeologists are calling this the Goliath layer after the city's most famous resident of the time. Interesting, huh? The story of David and Goliath. Relatively newer, we have found an official seal belonging to Galayahu, the son of Immer. So this was at the Temple Mount. It's called the Temple Mount Sifting Project. It was reopened in New Jerusalem, in a New Jerusalem location, sorry. Researchers announced the discovery of a clay bola, identifying it as, quote, the first readable ancient Hebrew inscription found on the Temple Mount. The priestly family of Immer served in the temple in 1 Chronicles 24. Pasher, the son of Immer, is called the chief official in the temple of Yahweh when he had Jeremiah beaten and put in the stocks. That's in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. So now we have found proof of this historical character. We've also found a seal of Natanmelech, the king's servant. I believe it's 2007. And this dates back to 586 B.C., and he is in 2 Kings 23, verse 11. He is an official in the court of the king of Josiah. Lots of artifacts. Again, these are just the tip of the iceberg. If you just Google it, you'll see hundreds. Now, archaeological proof of Israel and biblical timelines. There's one big archaeological, I guess, terminology that is used called the stella which is basically a stone monument that is carved with words or cuneiform text, okay? So you'll hear that word a lot, the stella. The first one that I have listed is the Mernepta stella, which is by archaeologist Flinders Petrie in 1896. Among the other enemies of Egypt on this stella, the word for Israel is found. Biblical scholars have dated this to be among the earliest mention of the Israelites in archaeological history. This pharaoh reigned and obviously commissioned this stone to be built from 1213 to 1203 BC. So what that means, that puts to rest any historical argument for Palestine. The first record of the word Palestine is around the first century BC or AD. I don't remember which. This is from 1200 BC. 
So remember, Palestine was used to try and eradicate the Israeli name after they were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The term merely meant desolation or the place of Philistines. So Hudson.org has a great paper on the history of that region. And this says, quote, no precise definition existed for the name Palestine because none was required. Since the Roman era, the name lacked political significance. No nation has ever had that name until after 1948 or 1946 when Israel became a nation again. And then people started saying, oh, it's Palestine. And it never was. The term was meaningful to Christians as synonymous with the Holy Land. It was meaningful to Jews as synonymous with Eretz Yisrael, which is Hebrew for the land of Israel. As noted by the Palestinian scholar Mohammed Muslih, in the origins of Palestinian nationalism, he said Arabic speakers sometimes used the Arabic words for holy land, but never coined a uniquely Arabic name for the territory. Philistine is the Arabic pronunciation of the Roman terminology Palestine. All it referred to was a desolate land, and sometimes there were people there from Philistia. Way back in ancient times, it was owned by the Philistines, but, oh, they were conquered by the Jews, so it became Israel. So this particular stella, the Merneptah stella from 1213 BC, proves that Israel owned that land. All right, then as far as more artifacts, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, basically a preserved library containing scrolls from 300 BC until the first century A.D., these have prophecies of Jesus Christ three, four hundred years before he ever came around. All right, then we have the quadrilingual Darius I jar. This mentions the Darius I of Persia, also known as Darius the Great, in the books of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. So those books of the Bible mention Darius I. The museum has a Persian calcite jar with four inscriptions that praise Darius in four different languages proving the existence of this king from biblical times. The Mesha Stella was discovered in 1868. It was written by King of Moab, King Mesha, in the late 9th century BC with parts that correspond to events in the Hebrew Bible. This inscription, this stella, talks about how Mesha's leadership of Moab, Moab led to triumph against Israel. 9th century. All right, so 900 BC. Now we also have the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's 12 stone tablets George Smith discovered in 1872. It has the Assyrian narrative of the flood on one of the tablets. These are dated to the 7th century BC. It's very similar to the story of Noah. So it lends a lot of credence to that because it talks about how one man was told by God to build a boat to save himself and his family. Now here's a cool one I just found out about while I was doing this podcast is the Kedef Hinnom Scrolls in 1979. They are scrolls made from silver, like metal. In order to unravel these scrolls, it took them almost three years to open the first one and to decipher it. Uh, it's dated from 600 BC. It's written in Paleo-Hebrew writing. The text is from the Book of Numbers, and it has been hailed as one of the most remarkable biblical discoveries ever recorded. They predate the oldest Dead Sea Scrolls by more than 400 years and therefore they're useful for textual criticism of the Bible, thus proving further the accuracy of our modern-day Bible translations. 
We also have found an old limestone box known as the Caiaphas Ossuary, which was found in a burial cave in the Jerusalem suburb of the Peace Forest in 1990. The Ossuary is a container for bones of the dead, has inscriptions in Aramaic with the name Joseph, son of Caiaphas, and is thought to have held the remains of the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas presided over the Jewish council that tried and sentenced Jesus to death called the Sanhedrin, according to the Gospels. This gives credible proof for the presence of the figure and the story described in the New Testament. And then there's another tell Dan Stella in 1993 that was discovered. So look, here's the point, guys. The conclusion of all of this historical stuff, archaeology, everything combined. Number one, kings and other famous people of the Bible have been proven to have existed. Locations, battles, kingdoms, and cities of the Bible have been proven to have existed. Many artifacts have been found that prove these people, places, and events. Many writings have been found from non-biblical kings inscribed in stone that prove biblical places, people, and events. Here's the point. Anyone who scoffs at the Bible as having made up stories is laughably ignorant of the facts. Why does that matter to you? It's important to realize that the Bible is not merely a spiritual book, but it is a verifiably accurate set of books from God that has been proven, proven empirically, scientifically to be trustworthy, logically, historically, scientifically, archaeologically, and morally. So this gives us more than ample reason to trust what it says, even on things that haven't been proven yet, or spiritual things that can't be proven. Think about it this way. The Bible. Think about the Bible this way. If someone is historically accurate in every detail, logically accurate in every detail, scientifically accurate in every detail, are they not then a credible source? If someone is known for telling the truth, even when it reveals bad things they have done, like the sins of God's chosen people in Israel in the Bible, like Abraham and King David, etc. If people tell the truth, even when it hurts them, doesn't that prove that they are even more reliable for truth-telling? When a book or a document is verified and proven, like the Bible has been, to be the most accurate ancient document ever found in the history of mankind, why is it? that that book is the most scoffed at and derided and treated as if it's fake. That's not logical. So knowing all these, these things about the accuracy of the Bible should give us confidence in sharing the Bible with unbelievers and understanding that any human, whether religious or not, ought to be curious and at the very least respectful of this awesome set of books even if you choose not to believe in God. But it clearly points to God. So if everything else is true, why wouldn't it be truthful about God? Why would somebody tell the truth every time about everything? And then when it comes to who, who God is, it lies. That doesn't make sense. The Bible's true. God is real. Until next time, may God bless you all.